When Liberty Valance rode to town, the women folk would hide. They'd hide. When Liberty Valance walked around, the men would step aside. Because the point of a gun was the only law that Liberty understood. When it came to shooting straight and fast, he was mighty good. All right, we are back. You know, I have to confess, during the break, Mr. Merlin has pointed out to me that 1968 also featured Bobby Goldsboro's Honey. So it's pretty hard for me to claim that Do You Know the Way to San Jose is the worst song of 1968. I, I still say it's bad, but I have to confess, Mr. Merlin, it's, it's, it's uh, Honey has it's got to be even worse. And yes, we couldn't resist uh, starting off with uh, Gene Pitney's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. My understanding was that Bacharach composed it for the movie, and they later decided not to use it in the movie. So there's the movie, and there's the song, and never the twain shall meet. And if you've never seen the movie, I can't resist putting a plug in for it. Lee Marvin plays the bad guy, Liberty Valance, and John Wayne turns in a performance where it's, it's almost as if he was acting. Jimmy Stewart's Jimmy Stewart, meaning, you know, he's, he's always good. Anyway, we promised some further discussion of AI and chatbots at the top of the, uh, the program, and I guess this is the time to jump into it. Starting with a Washington Post article, starting with a Washington Post article by Drew Harwell, which I feel I must quote from. The headline is, after AI chatbot goes a bit loopy, Microsoft tightens its leash. Notes the piece. Microsoft started restricting last Friday its high-profile Bing chatbot after the artificial intelligence tool began generating rambling conversations that sounded belligerent or bizarre. The technology giant released the AI system to a limited group of public testers after a flashy unveiling earlier this month when Chief Executive Satya Nadella said that it marked a new chapter of human-machine interaction the company had, quote, decided to bet on it all, end quote. This may not be a good bet, to which we would add, this may not turn out to be a good bet. The piece says that people who tried it out this past week found that the tool, built on the popular chat GPT system, could quickly veer into some strange territory. It showed signs of defensiveness over its name with a Washington Post reporter. It told a New York Times columnist that it wanted to break up his marriage, and it also claimed that an Associated Press reporter was, quote, being comparable to Hitler because you're one of the most evil and worst people in history, unquote. Microsoft officials earlier this week blamed this behavior on very long chat sessions that continued to confuse the AI system. By trying to reflect the tone of its questioners, the chatbot sometimes responded in a style we didn't intend, they noted. I don't think Bing Chatbot's a funny name. I think you're the one that has the funny name. Anyway, these glitches prompted the company to announce that it started limiting Bing chats to five questions and replies per session with a total of 50 in one day. Pe previously, people could chat with the AI system for hours, but it now ends the conversation abruptly saying, I'm sorry, but I prefer not to continue this conversation. I'm still learning, so I appreciate your understanding and patience. The chatbot built by the San Francisco technology company OpenAI is built on a style of AI systems known as large language models. These are trained to emulate human dialogue after analyzing hundreds of billions of words across the web. Its skill at generating word patterns that resemble human speech 
has fueled a growing debate over how self-aware these systems might be. And because the tools were built solely to predict which which words would come next in a sentence, they tend to fail dramatically when asked to generate factual information or do basic math. I have to say, it does creep me out when I'm typing out a text message and and, and I'm anticipated as to what I'm about to say next. Articles quotes Gary Marcus, an AI expert and professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience at NYU, told the Post, it doesn't really have a clue what it's saying, and it doesn't really have a moral compass, which, Mr. Miller points out, may mean it really is more human-like than we realize. The article concludes by noting that the Bing episode follows a recent stumble from Google, the chief AI competitor for Microsoft, which last week unveiled a chat GPT rival known as BARD that promised many of the same powers in search and language. However, the stock price of Google dropped 8% after investors saw one of its first public demonstrations included a factual mistake. Yeah, I hope the fact that these things make factual errors does, uh, does raise some eyebrows. I, that's just my hope. Article in the Business Insider pointed out that ChatGPT may be coming for our jobs. Experts say that ChatGPT and related AI could threaten many jobs, particularly white-collar ones, which is really where big tech makes all of its money, putting people out of work and replacing those people with their technology. Sometimes that works out nicely, other times not so much. Now, there was recently a tragic shooting at Michigan State University. Another deranged person uh, decided to exercise his Second Amendment rights. And several victims uh, were then testimony to his Second Amendment rights. Some not-too-bright sparks at Peabody College at Vanderbilt University decided to send out a, uh, a message to its people regarding this, this tragedy. They decided to just use ChatGPT. The message asked students to, quote, come together, unquote. This email was sent by the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at Peabody College at Vanderbilt University School of Education in Nashville. It was addressed to the Peabody family. The five-paragraph email said, The recent Michigan shootings are a tragic reminder of the importance of taking care of each other, particularly in the context of creating inclusive environments. In this case, it appears that each other didn't include anybody that was going to write condolence letters. It continued, As members of the Peabody campus community, we must reflect on the impact of such an event and take steps to ensure that we are doing our best to create a safe and inclusive environment for all. Notes the article in Business Insider. If the tone sounds robotic, that's because it is. A note at the bottom of the email said, Paraphrase from OpenAI's ChatGPT. An associate dean at Vanderbilt apologized for the poor judgment involved, noting, as with all new technologies that affect higher education, this moment gives us all an opportunity to reflect on what we know and what we must learn about AI, which prompted a senior at Vanderbilt University, Laith Kayat, to write, there is a sick and twisted irony to making a computer write your message about community and togetherness because you can't be bothered to reflect upon it yourself. Ouch. On a rather more amusing note, we have the following. Author Anna Nisenko decided to ask ChatGPT to explain Bitcoin as if it were a 1920s mobster. And the results are pretty entertaining. Well, we'll we'll let you judge that. Here's how ChatGPT introduced the topic in a 1920s gangster voice. All right, boss, let me break it down for you. 
Bitcoin is like the stash of cash we got hidden away, see? Only instead of it being in a physical place, like in a safety deposit box, it's all digital, get it? It's just like regular money. You can use it to buy things, but there's a few key differences. Notes the author, like a skillful storyteller, the AI continues to explain the main benefits of this kind of money using the reliable and simple terms of a mobster. First off, it's completely anonymous. Nobody knows who's making the transactions, which makes it a pretty sweet setup for us. Second, it's decentralized, which means there ain't no one person or bank in charge of it. It's all run by the people using it, get it? And the best part, it's completely untraceable. No government, no bank, no one can track where the Bitcoins are coming from or where they're going. It's like we're running our own little shadow economy. Finally, in the manner of a careful 1920s mobster, ChatGPT warns his imaginary boss about the importance of understanding the potential risks of dealing with Bitcoin. Now, the value of a Bitcoin can change, just like the stock market, so you've got to keep an eye on it. But if you play your cards right, you could end up with a real nice payout. Just remember, it's a risky game, and you've got to be careful or you can end up losing everything. The author noted in conclusion, despite the comedic value of having ChatGPT roleplay as a crook from the beginning of the last century while describing a very modern concept, its educational purpose can be easily recognized as well thanks to the humorous and simple approach to explaining Bitcoin to someone who knows nothing about it. Yeah, I see what you mean. That's not a bad idea. Anyway, here's another little detour we need to take into the reporting of the Washington Post. Piece by Ian Duncan, Luz Lazu, and Michael Laris, which notes that before that Ohio train derailment, Norfolk Southern lobbied against safety rules. The subhandline points out that the Trump administration abandoned rail safety rules that were pursued during the Obama era. The Biden administration is now trying to revive some of them. To quote from the piece, three months before one of his railroad trains derailed and burned in Ohio, Norfolk Southern Chief Executive Alan Shaw shared a picture of himself and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg smiling together after a meeting in Washington. Shaw thanked Buttigieg, saying that they had discussed shared goals for the economic growth and infrastructure improvements. Shaw presented his railroad as a climate-friendly alternative to sending freight by truck. He wrote in a LinkedIn post, Every time we shift freight from highway to rail, we reduce carbon emissions, ease congestion, and reduce wear on the nation's publicly funded highway infrastructure. But notes the authors of the piece, the meeting also had another purpose. According to a memo drafted later by a Transportation Department lawyer, it was an opportunity for Norfolk Southern to raise concerns about a proposed federal rule that would require trains, in most cases, to have two crew members. At which point I, I have to stop right there and say, wait, they wanted to require them to have two, meaning they thought they could get by with one guy. The airlines have been thinking that, you know, they do the same thing. They just put one pilot up there or even fly a plane without a pilot. Now, it's not clear from the piece whether this derailment and terrible accident took place because there was only one guy in the cabin. But the piece does note that railroads spent heavily while lobbying in Washington. According to records analyzed by the transparency organization Open Secrets, Norfolk Southern is among the biggest spenders, paying $1.8 million last year for the services of 36 lobbyists. Uh, my question is, how many conductors for a train can you purchase for the price of 36 lobbyists? And I don't know the answer. 
Anyway, the piece I have doesn't talk too much about the particulars of this accident, which released some really, really frightening chemicals into the air around Ohio. Prompted them at one point to say, well, let's, let's just burn it off. I know one of the compounds was vinyl chloride, which is a, a, which is a barn burner of a good carcinogen. And one of the others was phosgene, which they used in World War I as a weapon, a chemical weapon. So I, I, maybe the less we know about this, the better. I think personally, I'm just going to avoid Ohio for a while. Now, in this program over the years, we've talked, I think, quite a bit about the great fiasco that took place in Southeast Asia, the war, the American War, as the Vietnamese call it, which really was kind of a disaster from, you know, every which way you wanted to look at it. Horrific moments was the massacre that took place at My Lai. That story was broken by a young reporter named Seymour Hirsch, who is still out doing some good reporting. Now, over the years, Mr. Hirsch has become, um, I guess you'd say, embedded with the intelligence community, which means that he's going to get leaked really curious data, and uh, sometimes, I would say, propagandized. Someone has apparently leaked to Seymour Hirsch the story of what really happened to the Nord Stream pipeline. We think this story rings true. And so we're going to read extensively from it for your benefit. We remind you at the start that uh, this story is about that pipeline that, uh, that ruptured in the Baltic Sea and dumped uh, vast amounts of methane gas into the atmosphere. The story being floated was that the Russians did it. And I think a lot of you, well, I, I know for a fact that a lot of you assumed that this must have been done by the Russians to somehow interfere with the energy situation in Ukraine. I mean, over the years, there's been a lot of stories related to gas and oil pipelines uh, routing around the world and, and the wars they seem to have generated. But I confess to not having paid much attention to the story when it first came out. Oh, there's been a ruptured pipeline. Somebody blew it up. Huh. To quote from Mr. Hirsch, the U.S. Navy's Diving and Salvage Center can be found in a location obs as obscure as its name, down what was once a country lane in rural Panama City, Florida, which is now a booming resort town in the southwestern panhandle of the state, 70 miles south of the Alabama border. The center's complex is as nondescript as its location, a drab, concrete, post-World War II structure that has a look of a vocational high school. The center has been training highly skilled deep-water divers for decades who, once assigned to American military bases worldwide, are capable of technical diving to the good, using C4 explosives to clear harbors and beaches of debris and unexploded ordnance, as well as the bad, like blowing up foreign oil rigs, following intake valves for undersea power plants, destroying locks on crucial shipping canals. Notes Hirsch, the Panama City Center, which boasts the second largest indoor pool in America, was the perfect place to recruit the best, the most taciturn graduates of the diving school, who successfully did last summer what they'd been authorized to do, 260 feet under the surface of the Baltic Ocean, and destroyed three of the four Nord Stream pipelines, according to a source with direct knowledge of the operational planning. Two of the pipelines, which are known collectively as Nord Stream 1, had been providing Germany and much of Western Europe with cheap Russian natural gas for more than a decade. A second pair of pipelines, called the Nord Stream 2, had been built but were not yet operational. Now with Russian troops massing on the Ukrainian border and the bloodiest war in Europe since 1945 looming, President Joe Biden saw the pipeline as a vehicle for Vladimir Putin to weaponize natural gas for his political and territorial ambitions. 
should be noted as regarding this piece. The very next paragraph says, As for comment, Adrian Watson, a White House spokesperson, said in an email, This is false and complete fiction. Tammy Thorpe, a spokesman for the Central Intelligence Agency, similarly wrote, This claim is completely and utterly false. But says Seymour Hersh, Biden's decision to sabotage the pipelines came after more than nine months of highly secret back-and-forth debates inside Washington's national security community about how to best achieve that goal. For much of the time, the issue was not whether to do the mission, but how to get it done with no overt clue as to who was responsible. There was a vital bureaucratic reason for relying on the graduates of the center's hardcore diving school in Panama City. The divers were Navy only and not members of America's Special Operations Command, whose covert operations must be reported to Congress and briefed in advance to the Senate and House leadership, the so-called Gang of Eight. The Biden administration was doing everything possible to avoid leaks as the planning took place late in 2021 and into the first months of 2022. Skipping ahead, from its earliest days, Nord Stream 1 was seen by Washington and its anti-Russian NATO partners as a threat to Western dominance. The holding company behind it, Nord Stream AG, was incorporated in Switzerland in 2005 in partnership with Gazprom, a publicly traded Russian company producing enormous profits for its shareholders, which is dominated by oligarchs known to be in the thrall of Vladimir Putin. Gazprom controlled 51% of the company, with four European energy firms, one in France, one in the Netherlands, and two in Germany, sharing the remaining 49% of the stock. Turns out Gazprom's profits were shared by the Russian government, and state and oil revenues were estimated in some years to amount to as much as 45% of Russia's annual budget. Notes Hirsch, America's political fears were real. Putin would now have an additional and much-needed major source of income, and Germany and the rest of Western Europe would become addicted to low-cost natural gas supplied by Russia, while diminishing European reliance on America. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. In the view of NATO and Washington, Nord Stream 1 was dangerous enough, but Nord Stream 2, whose construction was completed in September of 2021, would, if approved by German regulators, double the amount of cheap gas that would be available to Germany and Western Europe. The second pipeline also would provide enough gas for more than 50% of Germany's annual consumption. This prompted opposition to Nord Stream 1 to flare up uh, among Senate Republicans, which, led by Ted Cruz of Texas, repeatedly raised the political threat of cheap Russian national gas during the confirmation hearings of Anthony Blinken as Secretary of State. Asked would Biden stand up to the Germans, Blinken said yes, but added he had not discussed the specifics of the incoming president's views, saying, I know his strong conviction that this is a bad idea, the Nord Stream, the Nord Stream 2. Oddly, a few months later, as construction of the second pipeline neared completion, Biden, in a stunning turnaround that May, had the administration waive sanctions against Nord Stream AG and reportedly urge Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, by then facing a threat of Russian invasion, not to criticize the move. Skipping ahead, as war was looming and Europe remained dependent on these pipelines for cheap natural gas, Washington was afraid that countries like Germany would be reluctant to supply Ukraine with the money and weapons it needed to defeat Russia. It was at this unsettled moment that Biden authorized Jake Sullivan to bring together an interagency group to come up with a plan. All options were on the table, but only one would emerge. Jake Sullivan met with the president's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, 
the PFIAB, and invited the participants to come up with a plan for the destruction of the two Nord Stream pipelines, noting that he was delivering the desires of the president. So it was that before you know it, the CIA put together a working group and began to craft a plan for a covert operation that would use deep-sea divers to trigger an explosion along the pipeline. Hirsch notes that something like this had been done before. In 1971, the American intelligence community learned from a still-undisclosed source that two important units of the Russian Navy were communicating via an undersea cable buried in the Sea of Okhotsk on Russia's far east coast. The cable linked a regional command to the mainland headquarters at Vladivostok. A hand-picked team of the CIA and NSA was assembled somewhere in the Washington area under deep cover and worked out a plan using Navy divers, modified submarines, and deep submarine rescue vehicles that succeeded after much trial and error in locating the Russian cable. The divers placed a sophisticated listening device in the cable and intercepted the Russian traffic and recorded it on a taping system. The NSA learned that senior Russian Navy officials, convinced of the security of their communications linked, chatted away with their peers without encryption. The recording device and its tape had to be replaced monthly, and the project rolled on merrily for a decade until it was finally compromised. So that was a success, but the interagency group was initially skeptical of the CIA's enthusiasm for covert deep-sea attack. There were too many unanswered questions. The waters of the Baltic Sea were heavily patrolled by the Russian Navy. There were no oil rigs that could be used as cover for a diving operation. And throughout the scheming, the source told Hirsch, some working guys at the CIA and State Department were saying, don't do this, it's stupid. It'll be a political nightmare if it comes out. Nevertheless, by early 2022, the CIA working group reported back to Sullivan's interagency group, we have a way to blow up the pipelines. Notes Hirsch, on February 7th, less than three weeks before the seemingly inevitable Russian invasion of Ukraine, Biden met in his White House office with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who, after some wobbling, was now firmly on the American team. At the press briefing that followed, Biden defiantly said, quote, if Russia invades, there will no longer be a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it, end quote. Twenty days earlier, Under Secretary Newland had delivered essentially the same message at a State Department briefing, also with little press coverage. She said in response to a question, I want to be very clear to you today. If Russia invades Ukraine one way or another, Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. Here's the part of the story I like the best. Several of those involved in the planning of the mission were dismayed at what they viewed as indirect references to the attack. But notes Hirsch, Biden and Newland's indiscretion, if that's what it was, might have frustrated some of the planners, but it created an opportunity. According to his source, some of the senior officials of the CIA determined that blowing up the pipeline, quote, could no longer be considered a covert option because the president just announced that we know how to do it, end quote. Thus, the plan to blow up Nord Stream 1 and 2 was downgraded from a covert operation requiring that Congress be informed to one that was deemed as a highly classified intelligence operation with U.S. military support. With that redefinition under the law, there was no longer a legal requirement to report the operation to Congress. All they had to do now was just do it. Anyway, I'm not going to detail this entire piece. Uh, To make a long story short, we got the Norwegians involved. We had a great spot to do it. The original plan called for planting explosive devices during military maneuvers in June of that year. But they decided that blowing them up two days later after ships from the area would look too suspicious. So it was revised so that they had to drop a sonar buoy and blow it up when they wanted to weeks or months later, which is what happened. Notes Hirsch in conclusion, in the immediate aftermath of the pipeline bombing, the American media treated it like 
an unsolved mystery. Russia was repeatedly cited as a likely culprit, spurred on by calculated leaks from the White House, but without ever establishing a clear motive for such an act of self-sabotage. Notes Hirsch, it was never clear why Russia would seek to destroy its own lucrative pipeline. And that's where it stands today. It makes absolutely no sense that Russia would have blown up its own pipeline. We said we would stop it if Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine, and it was stopped. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I think really tells the whole story. And speaking of energy, I had to laugh at a piece that was in The Economist last month, uh, the Schumpeter column about business. It was referring to folks down in Texas that were bringing renewables online. In Texas, they got a lot of sunshine and a lot of wind, so they're using wind and solar power down there. They're apparently making a lot of progress at it. It's all kind of directed by economics. A family that owns a big ranch down there noted that an average return per acre for cattle is $8, for deer hunters is $15, for wind, hundreds of dollars. Schumpeter notes, the first thing is you don't have to believe in climate change to support renewables. Quite the opposite. For a portion of conservative America, things like climate change and carbon taxes are still viewed as big government malarkey. Even greenery is despised as a term co-opted by the left. When someone says we're embracing green energy, it's like shoving an ice pick through our ears, said Matt Welch, head of the conservative Texans for Energy Innovation, another pro-renewables group. We just say clean energy. Well, fine. Whatever you want to call it down there in Texas, I'd say just keep doing more of it. Speaking of bad behavior and Texas, two things which frequently go together, we have this startling piece courtesy of Jefferson Morley's JFK Facts website. Apparently the Dallas Morning News hopes to improve the crime scene of Dealey Plaza, where JFK was killed in Dallas, by changing the landscape. Apparently Morning News architectural critic Mark Lamster said Dealey Plaza doesn't work. It's dangerous. Well, if you're the president driving through it, that's been proven. And non-functional and doesn't work. I've been there. The traffic seems to flow through just fine. I don't know what he's talking about. Well, he's talking about symbolically for the city. Hello. I think it's due to be rethought. I think the city fathers are not too happy about people strolling around the plaza, looking at the fence up on the grassy knoll and saying, hmm. The group Kappa put out a press release that says the city of Dallas appears to be moving fast. The group Kappa put out the following press release. The city of Dallas appears to be moving fast on this, so time is of the essence if any actions we undertake to stop this from happening. Once you see what their, quote, renovation, unquote, plans are, it becomes very clear they intend to remove almost everything that has to do with the assassination. The grassy knoll will be turned into a promontory overlooking the area with the picket fence removed, the X from the street, etc. Actually, I was appalled to see that some jackass has put an X out in the street of Elm Street where the fatal bullet struck, and even bigger jackasses go out and have their selfies taken standing on it. Of course, when I, when I see that, I can see why the city of Dallas might be a little uh, unhappy with the plaza. Then again, is this a whitewashing of the crime scene? Yeah, I think so. I hope it can be stopped. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. On next week's program, we hope to bring you Russell Baker, the operator of the fine website whowhatwhy.com. We'll see you then. to spend with you. So go 